Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Inspiring you to bring God back into the conversation of the day. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. Good morning. I'm Carmen LaBerge. You are listening to Faith Radio. This is Mornings with Carmen. Um, Thank you for including me in your day. I count it a a tremendous blessing. I have prayed for you already this morning. I would ask that you would pray for me as well. I count uh, count that a, a, a wonderful grace. So thank you in advance for your prayers for me. I lift my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? That's the opening line of Psalm 121. I want you to consider for just a moment, um, what's the first number you call if you're in the midst of a crisis, um, you know, beyond 911, um, who do you call? Where do you turn for help? The psalmist says, I lift up my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? You know, is is, is help going to come from the neighboring nation, the neighboring community, Uh, The person who lives at the top or over the crest of the hill, I lift up my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? The psalmist then acknowledges the truth of the matter. My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. He will not let your foot slip. He who watches over you will not slumber. Indeed, he who watches over Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord watches over you. The Lord is your shade at your right hand. The sun will not harm you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all harm. He will watch over your life. The Lord will watch over your coming and your going both now and forevermore. Psalm 121 is a great reminder of who is watching over us. Should you just consider that for a moment that the Lord right now Right now, the maker of heaven and earth, the very God of all things, is watching over you. He watches over you when you sleep, and he never sleeps. He watches over you when others seek to bring you harm, and he always does you good. The Lord watches over you day and night in the midst of the wonderful things that happen in life, and yes, in the midst of the deepest of sorrows. The Lord will keep you. This being kept by the Lord um, is a place where I want to linger for just a moment. Just consider that, that the Lord keeps you. We think of of John 15, where Jesus talks about abiding in him and abiding in the vine, um, We think of that as something that we do, but I want you to consider for just a moment that that abiding is made possible because God keeps us there. I am a kept woman. I want you to just consider that for just a moment. And I don't want to be anything else. I want to be kept by God. It's a great solace. 
we um we know from the words of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ that as disciples, um, if we want to follow Jesus, we have to deny ourselves and take up our cross and follow him. But what does that mean? What does that kind of surrender look like? We're going to talk with Dave Buring from Lion Share about that next. How do we actually deny ourselves, take up our cross every day, surrender our rights, and follow Jesus? You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. I'm Carmen LaBerge, and this is Faith Radio. Heads up, uh, an organization called Lion Share. You can find what we're talking about at lionshare.org. Dave, welcome back. Hey, good morning, kept woman. Mm-hmm. And from one dead person to another, good morning. <laughs> good morning. Right? So um, I, I actually like remember um, being told by a friend. I mean, I was, you know, I was, I was probably 24, 25 at the time. I mean, and I just remember... Um, I was striving after something, right, in life. And I just remember him saying, okay, at some point you're going to have to realize you're already dead. Mm. You are already dead. Mm. And I, I, um, I started to understand discipleship completely differently from that point forward. So yeah. um, talk with us about what it means to die to self. What are the Bible verses we should be calling to mind when we say that? And then how do we do it? Yeah, you know, when you're when you're thinking about this whole area of dying to self, there's a couple of pieces. There's a there's the piece that, you know, when you go down and like we just did some baptisms at our church and, and one of the gentlemen that was doing it, you know, he when he, he thrusts the person down into the water, he'll say, die with Christ. And then when he pulls him up, he'll say, rise with Christ. And there's that truly real dynamic of when we first give our lives to the Lord, there's the putting off of the old man and the old choices and the old attitudes and the old dispositions and putting on the new, meaning who we were before Jesus is different because he now lives within us. The Spirit of God now lives within us, and we take on a spiritual disposition, and things that are spiritual are now important to us, and the Word becomes alive to us, and there's that piece of it. But then on the discipleship side, when it comes to our implementation of it, which again, I want to underscore through this whole conversation, the Spirit of God leads us and guides us in this process. We're not alone just trying to suck it up and do it. But part of the reality here is, is what Jesus said in John 12, 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies... It bears much fruit. And as a, as a kid, I grew up on the northern Minnesota farm uh, during the summers of my grandparents. And so I began to understand a little bit what that looked like and what that mean that a grain of wheat had to go into the ground. And if it didn't die, that thing wouldn't come up. And Jesus calls us to do the same, that we need to die to ourselves. And, and when I say that, Carmen, 
I don't mean that you can't enjoy a piece of cake or apple pie or a ball game or whatever. It, it means dying to selfishness. So we're saying dying to self. It's dying to selfishness that we might live for God and others. Uh, it is dying to selfishness. It is dying to um, my ideas about my life. It is um, it, it is a cooperation with the Holy Spirit. I think that yes. your highlighting of that is so helpful. Um, it's a dying to self-reference. Like, everything in my life is not referential to me anymore. Mm-hmm. It mm-hmm. is in reference to Christ. Um, mm-hmm. Dying to self is, um, is self... Uh, like, I... I put the needs of others and the concerns of Christ above my own. So whatever that self is. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. I just think that there are some ways for us to roll this over and talk about this um, that that, that are particularly helpful. And you have aggregated some examples at lionshare.org in in season four of your podcast. Um, Episode six is Dying to Self. So if you guys are looking for this and the notes related to it, go to lionshare.org looking for season four, episode six, Dying to Self of the podcast. There's some downloadable notes for you there. Um, Dave, let's um, let's take a pause. And when we come back, let's give some examples of how we die to self, how we okay. die to self-reference and self-reliance. We're talking with Dave Buring. We'll be right back. Are you dead yet? That is the question of the morning. We are talking with Dave Buring from Lion Share about dying to self as Christians. Um, Dave, why don't we walk through some examples of dying to self? Yeah, I, I think uh, it's an important thing for us to recognize that, again, this is a process that the Holy Spirit leads us in. It's not a, be a if you're going to be a really godly person that dies to self, you go sit on a pole, you you know, alone and nobody can touch you or talk with you for for weeks or months. I mean, sometimes we, we can move into this self-sacrificing mode that we think will glorify Jesus. And the thing, again, I want to underscore is we've got to follow the lead of the Holy Spirit because he knows what in us needs to die. And, and it's things, Carmen, like our self-will, or I like to say our agenda. You know, sometimes it's like we might come up with good ideas and good thoughts, but I've learned over the years that, you know, what God initiates in our life, he permeates. What I initiate, I have to sustain. And sometimes my own self-will can come up with what I think is a great idea to do something for God, but God doesn't work that way. The way God works is he initiates, he shows us, and we follow. And so that includes in in this area of dying to self. So there's our agenda, our self-will. There's the um, relying on only ourselves. Like, I wonder how much of what we do is really relying on our own strengths, our own gifts, our own experiences, and we're not really relying on you. And there's something about our walk with God where he really values our dependence on him. So our, is God putting you in a place today where he's trying to cause you to depend on him and, and everything in us? This is part of the dying to self process. Everything in us fights that. Uh, another one I think that's very difficult for us today is is dying to our opinions. Now, does that mean our opinions are wrong or bad? Of course not. But sometimes God will say, okay, that's enough. Now, would you would you just follow me here? I love you. 
I can see the outcome. I, I know where I want this thing to go, but you got to trust me and follow my lead. And I think for followers of Jesus who are growing into disciples, all that can be very challenging. But if we can learn to yield and follow the Holy Spirit in there, out of our lives comes something that looks more like Jesus, that glorifies him and advances his kingdom in the world. So I think, Dave, that there's times when we're having these conversations about dying to self that, you know, there are people who have been beaten down and pressed down, um, and I don't want them to misunderstand what we're talking about. That's right. Um, and so can you speak Can you speak to that reality? Yeah. I mean, I think all of us, it's like I rarely run into a person these days that doesn't have some kind of massive challenge going on in their life. And some of those challenges, like you've said, have beaten them down significantly. And the thing that I want I want you to understand, if that's where you are, is that that's not God's character. That's not his heart. He doesn't beat stuff out of us. We've all had life happen that have brought tremendous disappointment, tremendous discouragement, tremendous wounds of our own hearts and minds. And for those of you that are listening today that have that, just know you have a heavenly father that adores you, loves you, cares about you. And can I just say this to you as well? Weeps with you. And we live in a world where there's still sin and sickness and disease and death. It's in the Bible, you know, where Jesus does the great commission of go make disciples. It, it ends with, and I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. And then the Bible talks, Paul talks about the age to come, which would be heaven. We'll see this, this evil age that we're living in still has disease and death and sickness, and sin, it's there. And when we bump into those kinds of things, Jesus wants to know, right now I am with you in that, and there will be a day that that we will be free, fully free from all of it. And so if you're walking through one of those kinds of times, and I've been through those kinds of times as well, friends, those around you, huge, huge, huge. But the most important thing is, are you encountering God? Are you relying on Him? Are you leaning into Him? Are you... Like, like for me in those situations, one little word of life from his heart to mine, whether it's through his word or he drops something in my heart, game changing. So lean in him today. He loves you. He cares about you. He wants to get his arms around you. He wants to, to share his heart with you today. I think so many of us, uh, Dave, are, uh, you know, we're self-reliant. We're self-actualizing. We're interested in you know, our self-will, we're self-confident, we're concerned about our self-esteem, we're self-interested, mm-hmm. we're frankly uh, self-satisfying. Mm-hmm. Um, and and all of that is reflective of the culture that is so focused on the self. I mean, we even, yeah. like, selfies, like, is even a thing. Like, right, the, the <laughs> fact that we take selfies is maybe clear evidence of, of this. Um, if you are taking a selfie at a funeral... And you're working to get, you know, the the casket and the graveyard um, in the, you know, in in the right filter and focus. Um, you're doing it wrong. Like, right? Th- this is. I just. I think that we have literally lost sight of um, who God is and who we are in relationship to Him. And we do imagine it's all about us. We we actually imagine it. We even imagine that salvation is all about us, and it's just not. No, that's right, and. And to be really honest, Carmen, unless, again, another reason why discipleship is so important, unless someone submits themselves to be discipled by a further along follower of Jesus, 
that understands these kinds of things, the ways of God, it often doesn't get translated into our lives. And, and it doesn't mean that people's hearts are bad or wrong. It's just they've never been pointed in this direction. And I, I run into it a lot. I mean, I've, I've heard, now again, this is going the extreme, but I've heard the phrase narcissism, you know, which is an absolute obsession with yourself, can't even see anything else around you, thrown around more in the last year or two than I ever have in my life. And whether it's real or not real for the people that are being talked about in this context, the fact is people are wrestling so much with this area that they're just seeing it. And and I think it's one of those pieces that, if I can be as bold as this, like humility, it's one of those pieces yet you really can't be a, a vessel by which Jesus really flows or reveals himself through your life without this. It's just not. It's like humility. It's, it's an essential in following Jesus. And here's, a, here's one of the ways that I can do a self-test on this is how much, <clears throat> excuse me, how much in a given day or a given week are my thoughts about me versus them being communing with the Lord, talking with him, reflecting on his ways, referencing his character. And I would add in there really thinking about other people, not what other people think about me or what they can do for me, but just actually how I could serve them, how I could come alongside them. I'm listening for God, what are you wanting to do in their life? And how can I be a part of that? that kind of thinking. And that's a simple test that we can do in our own hearts and minds. Where is our thinking going? Where is our thinking being spent? Mm, That's so good. I mean, if I'm cultivating the mind of Christ on the matters of the day, then I am, um, then I am dying to self in the same ways that Jesus died to self, who, you know, left the very glory of heaven to condescend to human experience, um, that, that we might have a savior, who was sufficient to the task of our salvation, right? So um, to, you know, there's no greater love than to lay down one's life for one's friend. And Jesus calls us friends and so lays down his life for us. We like to call Jesus our friend. I mean, what a friend I have in Jesus. But I'm not sure that we get it, that that means I lay down my life for him. And the life that I now live, I live not only by the power, but for the purposes of Christ in the here and now, not just unto heaven, not just a promise for me, um, but for him right now as an agent of his grace in the real world today. Yeah, that's right. Hey, Carmen, I'd like to read a little something. It's from a man by the name of Bill Britton. We put this in our uh, discipleship journey manual under the area of servanthood and dying to self. But but this, as you, those of you listening, just, just let this run by your heart and your soul. When you are forgotten, neglected, or purposely set at naught, and you don't sting and hurt with the insult or the oversight, but you keep your heart right before God and are glad to be counted as worthy to suffer for Jesus, that is dying to self. When your good is evil spoken of, when your wishes are crossed, your advice disregarded, your opinions ridiculed, and you refuse to let anger in your heart rise in your heart or even defend yourself, that is dying to self. When you lovingly and patiently bear any disorder, irregularity, unpunctuality, or any annoyance, and when you stand face to face with waste, foolishness, extravagance, and spiritual insensitivity as Jesus endured, that is dying to self. When you are content with any food, clothing, climate, culture, and any interruption by the will of God, that 
is dying to self, when you never care to refer to yourself in conversation or record your own good works or itch after accommodations, and when you truly love to be unknown, that is dying to self. When you can see someone else prosper and have their needs met and can honestly rejoice with them from your heart and feel no envy nor question God while your own needs are far greater, that is dying to self. And when you can receive rebuke and correction from one of less stature than yourself and can humbly submit inwardly as well as outwardly, finding no places of rebellion or resentment rising up within your heart, that is dying to self. And, and Bill closes it by saying, are you dead yet? In these days, the Holy Spirit desires to bring us to the cross that we might become more like Jesus. Isn't that weighty, Carmen? That is, that is fantastic. That is really great. Hey, if you guys want a copy of that, um, you can actually download it. It's in the podcast episode notes from season four, episode six, Dying to Self at lionshare.org. Dave, as always, thank you so much for being with us. I enjoyed it. Thank you, Carmen. Absolutely. All right. We're going to um, continue our, our conversation about dying to self. What does that look like in my life? What does it look like to die to self-will and to do God's will? It's a good question for the day. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. I'm Carmen LeBurge, and this is Faith Radio. As we get ready to talk with Dr. Adam Carrington from Hillsdale College, let me read a couple of headlines related to the Supreme Court of the United States. Uh, Justice Clarence Thomas has been hospitalized with flu-like symptoms Um, So we want to be praying for him today. It was noted uh, by commentators last evening that if for any reason Justice Thomas would leave the high court, the nominee that uh, President Biden would um, uh, would put forward would certainly shift the current conservative majority. And so um, it's a it's an interesting sort of thought conversation to have. But let's just be praying for his health. Let's be praying for his restoration a confirmation hearings begin today in the nomination of Judge Katani Brown Jackson, uh, Katanji, excuse me, Katanji Brown Jackson, to fill the vacancy that is created uh, by Justice Breyer's retirement. We're going to discuss both of these, and we're also going to talk with Adam about a couple of other headlines. One, a free speech conversation, and the other, um, the NCAA swimmer who is biologically male and just beat every woman in the field to stand atop the metal uh, platform. Yeah, yeah, we're going to talk about what is justice in days like this. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. I'm Carmen LeBurge, and this is Faith Radio. As we seek to understand what is uh, happening in the confirmation hearings of a proposed justice to the Supreme Court, who better to talk with than Dr. Adam Carrington, associate professor of politics. Um, And he is a a specialist in the U.S. Constitution, joining us from Hillsdale College this morning. Adam, good morning. Good morning to you all. Good to be back. Thank you so much. All right. So, uh, Katanji Brown-Jackson what do you feel like um, are going to be maybe the primary things folks are going to be looking for and listening for in uh, in the confirmation hearings? And what, if anything, do we know about her faith? 
Yeah, I think regarding the first question, I think there's going to be two lines of questioning depending upon the way that the ju- the senator understands his or her, the the role of a judge. One side, I mean, one side is going to be asking, and this may not necessarily be partisan, but one side is going to be asking a lot about policy outcomes or what cases would you uphold or overturn because of the policies, whether affirmative action or abortion or, or um, religious liberty or, or whatever the issue is, is involved. The other side is going to focus a lot on approach to the office of judging. How do you, do you believe that texts evolve or change over time or do they have an original intent or meaning that needs to be adhered to? And so I think that, you know, those are th- th- between the two, you're going to get a lot of questions both ways. I think the judge, the judge is probably not going to answer much of the first set of questions, uh, but will be interesting what she says about the second, about how she approaches interpreting legal texts. As far as her faith, that will be interesting as well, because <clears throat> the last couple justices their um, their Roman Catholic faith, Justice Barrett and Justice Kavanaugh, became important issues and really central with with Justice Barrett at one point as to can they judge properly or is this a signal that they'll judge the way that we want them to judge? And so uh, uh, Judge Brown actually does have a history of uh, and com- uh, she she's uh, I believe Baptist uh, as far as her her religious faith. She uh, has been on a Christian school board, which that has come up in the news. And so I, I think the, the question will be, uh, are they going to ask her similar questions? Uh, is, 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 is this something that is going to affect your decision making? Is that something we should be worried about? And my guess is she's going to say that while in some broad terms, her faith in God you know, informs some parts of her her judging that, you know, all people are precious, that all human beings are equal. They are in no way contrary to what the law says and that the law will be the primary instrument that they use. But we'll we'll see what she says. That would put her similar to what Kavanaugh and, and Barrett said. Yeah, I'm um, I'm interested. I'm interested to hear the questions and I'm interested to hear the answers. Remind us, um, you know, from a constitutional perspective, the Supreme Court is is what and functions as what? So this is like, you know, 101 reminders. <laughs> the, the Supreme Court is the judicial branch of the United States, and their goal is twofold as a court. What courts do is two things. One, they decide, well, they decide cases, and they decide cases by determining first guilt, what happened, um, you know, did someone actually do something or did someone else not? And second, um, what the law means when there's a dispute about the law's uh, um, um, meaning. And the Supreme Court actually does mostly the latter, that when there's a dispute about how the law was written or whether that law as written comports with our highest law, the U.S. Constitution, they step in and, and, and determine whose side the ultimate law the Constitution is on. And so that's, that, and so that's why these questions about how a judge interprets le- regular legal statutes and the U.S. Constitution is so central to determining the fitness of a judge because that's what they're going to be doing day in and day out is making that determination when litigants come to them and ask whose side is is, is the law on in this instance. 
Okay, let's pivot and have a conversation about free speech. If I go back to, you know, the opening of the Constitution and I say to myself, you know, what what is primary? What do I actually like understand are the freedoms guaranteed in the U.S. Constitution? Freedom of speech is going to top the list for a lot of people uh, or freedom of expression might be another way of um, describing the same thing. In a national poll that was commissioned by The New York Times um, and Siena College, 84 percent, that's a really high number, 84 percent of U.S. adults said that free speech is a very serious or somewhat serious problem, that Americans do not speak freely in everyday situations because of fear of retaliation or harsh criticism. First of all, the the fact that the that the New York Times is reporting on this, did the polling and has been honest about it is great um, because I think that the cancel culture conversation has often um, been ignored by, you know, folks on maybe the more left leaning parts of the media. So I view this as good news that there's recognition of it, but there's a real problem. Yes. And and I think that what what this shows is uh, something to keep in mind about the First Amendment. And that is, first, it is true that the, the First Amendment only applies to the government. In other words, you can only sue someone. You can only sue the United States government or a state government in court for violating your free speech. You can't sue a private individual or a private company for doing the same. But I think that what Americans are pinpointing is that that free speech as a moral principle and as a needed entity uh, in discourse between free citizens and a republic really does extend beyond what the government says you can and can't say. It really is saying that we should be privately treating each other in a way where you're not afraid of being, you know, canceled or, 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 uh, you know, kicked out of your job or other things because of the opinions you voice and, and because of the way you participate in public discourse. And I think what Americans are saying is that, to some degree, maybe some of them are afraid of how government may be stepping in and, 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 and putting its foot in where it shouldn't. But I think predominantly that's a fear of how we're how we're treating each other and that the First Amendment, while creating a legal obligation for the for the government, really articulates a moral obligation for the rest of us that many of us are not following and that is hurting our ability to to um, uh, speak freely and therefore to engage as we should as citizens. It's such a robust conversation. You know, there's uh, interesting related material from both Pew Research and the Knight Foundation. I mean, everybody is is discovering and finding, you know, the same thing um, that people really do feel um, hemmed in, cautious um, reticent to speak their minds, particularly if their views are conservative. Um, and that's, uh, that's, I think, an interesting observation. I'm guessing that there's a lot of people now listening who are nodding their heads up and down. Like, yeah, I know I have reserved comment in particular environments or situations, certainly in classrooms. I mean, I have a friend who's uh, studying for his PhD, and he just openly admits. He just, he just does not speak up. Because he wants to graduate, right? I mean, he, he wants to get through. Um, and, and his views are not welcome in the school where, you know, where he is attending. It's a challenge. Yeah, and that's a shame, especially in the educational environment where in trying to get at truth, you need to trust the truth enough to have it 
have some combat to get there and, and combat meaning free and open discussion. And you're right that, that um, because of the nature of who has the predominant influence in a lot of our institutions, our, our, our universities, even our public education system, beyond that, our entertainment industry, uh, the bureaucracy, you know, across all of these spheres, um, they are predominantly uh, um, um, left-leaning in who are, who's part of them. And I think that creates to, to, to some actually even a bit a blindside. You know, some, I think, are actively going after those that disagree with them and trying to shut them down. And for others, I think it creates a blind spot that they don't even realize it's going on because no one they know has suffered this. No one they know has had a problem with it. And it, 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 it's a kind of insularity that undermines free speech accidentally as much as some are trying to undermine it actively. Mm. All right, we're talking with Dr. Adam Carrington from Hillsdale College. We have a couple of other um, headlines that we would love to cover. Um, uh, and maybe we just take our uh, take our little break here just a minute early um, so that when we come back, we can talk about two other really important storylines. The one is related to the individual who stood atop the metal platform at the NCAA swimming um, finals. That person is a biological man. The competition was in women's swimming. That conversation up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Throw me like a stone in the water, watch the mud rise up. Dress me like a lamb for the slaughter, pour me in your cup. We're continuing our conversation with Dr. Adam Carrington from Hillsdale College. Um, Adam, the the victory of uh, an individual named Leah Thomas in the 500-meter competition that swimming competition uh, last Thursday made headlines. Uh, Leah Thomas also finished last in the 100-meter free um, on Sunday. But the issues related to trans uh, people who identify as a gender other, other than their biological gender, so these trans athletes, this is a big conversation, particularly related to fairness and justice. Begins with the idea of fairness and justice begins with asking the question, who are we? And if we really believe the biblical account that male and female, he created them in the image of God, he created them, then while we recognize that humanity as a whole holds certain things in common, that there are distinctions, that while we're all in the image of God, we all have certain um, unalienable rights that attach to that, as the Declaration of Independence says that doesn't eliminate all distinctions between human beings and that we need to treat like things alike and unlike things not alike. And I think that that, that plays out. Uh, you know, I, I, I read an article uh, by someone saying that just recently, but that goes all the way back to Aristotle, the uh, ancient Greek political philosopher said no different. And in this instance, the difference between male and female um, if you don't respect it, then I think you undermine the justice due, um, especially to the weaker, in this instance, physically just weaker by uh, uh, bone density, by muscle structure, and you open up uh, uh, and, you, and, and you undermine how we assess and celebrate excellence and s- assess and celebrate what God has done and created 
when it's when it's distorted by not recognizing, uh, I think, biological birth. So I, I think this is a, a very troubling thing that has serious implications for justice for women in particular, but also for recognizing the world God has created and uh, adequately uh, uh, recognizing excellence and, and the good that he's facilitated for us. I think um, part of the challenge uh, is the assumptions that we make as Christians. I mean, we just didn't think that this was territory that we had to be sure that we kept um, planting and uh, and tending, um, that people are created, you know, in the heart of God before the foundations of the earth. You know, you're... It's not assigned at birth by, you know, randomly by somebody making an observation about your physical body. Like, you are who you are as an image bearer of the living God. And male and female, God created them. I think part of the challenge that we face is we are so far, we are so far down the road in the conversation, in the culture, that it's hard to go back to talk about first things. And, and and we don't get to this particular issue if we didn't have massive, I think you're pointing this out, confusion about sex and gender prior to it. This is the result of that confusion, not a cause or a beginning of that confusion. And I think that, yes, you, you're right that asking these first questions we're we're not we we we're not even sure what vocabulary to use because we no longer have the common vocabulary of a commitment to to to, to truth a commitment to how God has created us and and um, and therefore caring for those who um, become confused or because of or sin has distorted in their minds who they really are um, I mean that's what sin does all sin distorts who you are. It tells you you're something you're not and does so in a way that's destructive to you and destructive to others. And um, it's a problem that the Bible anticipated. If you look at the very end of, of, of chapter one of Romans, it, 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 that, that, uh, Paul recognized that we would not only call sin righteousness, but we would celebrate it. And I think that, that that's what that's the lie that sin does, and it drives a wedge between us and God, but it also, in instances like this, drives a, a wedge between us and each other. Uh, and, and, and I think that, again, that's, that's a, a troubling thing that um, is going to be harder and harder to speak. I mean, connecting back to what you said about free speech, um, this is going to be something, an issue that tests our ability to speak freely— but it's going to be an instance where we're going to have to speak boldly because I think a lot is at stake as far as um, not just who wins a medal, not who just who wins a competition, but whether people are distorting themselves and hurting others as a result. So there's a Virginia Tech swimmer who did not make uh, the NCAA finals because Leah Thompson, Thomas made the finals um, in, in the 500 meter. Enrica Giorgi posted on Twitter, my finals spot was stolen by Leah Thomas, who is a biological male. Until we all refuse to compete, nothing will change. Thanks for all the support. Um, I think that, you know, there, that's a, there's a real question there. Do women, biological women, just not compete when there's a biological man competing in a particular sport? I mean, I, that would be um, you know, that would be a person in the pool all by themselves. 
Yeah, and 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 that's the and that's a question of prudence, uh, and the and prudence is trying to find the right and most effective way of doing justice in the current circumstances, and that may be something that they that that women bravely would need to consider doing, if it would be the most effective way to uh, secure their rights and secure uh, the biblical view of, 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 of sex and gender. Uh, that, again, that would just be, uh, I, I, I'm not saying they have to, but it would be a question of what's the most effective way to bring it about, and that could be it. Mm-hmm. All right, we have a couple of minutes left. I'd love to just tee up this, um, this story from Real Clear Politics. Um, coming of age in an era of protest. What is going on with Gen Z? Yeah, the, the the polling research is starting to come more into focus on Gen Z, and we're getting some interesting um, articulations and knowing about them. And of course, that this has implications for me thinking politically. One thing we're learning about them is that they are not hard left, as some people have accused them. They're sort of center left, uh, at least in the current landscape, which means, you know, there's some working with them if you lean to the political right there's some pragmatism in them but as far as even broader than politics although politics is included we're learning that they are one of the first generations in a while to grow up not knowing a country united that previous generations have known either united against communism or 9-11 for uh, millennials united against um you know the, the 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 attack on the twin towers but that uh, they don't have that. They they've only known in a divided country. They live in. Uh, uh, they they tend to be less hopeful and more fearful. They're the first generation to really grow up where uh, active shooter drills in schools was a normal thing, and so therefore. Uh, but also, they're some of the most politically active. Uh, they voted much in much higher rates as a young people than my, you know, my I'm a millennial, I'm an old millennial uh, than they did or even uh, Generation X did before us. And so, you know, the, these, I think, show us a generation that is searching because they're politically active, suffering uh, in, in the fears that they have been exposed to in a world that is uh, so disunited and uh, and therefore, I think, gives us some tools for how to how to talk to this generation if we're not a part of it and how to understand ourselves if anyone's out there that's part of that part of that generation. Uh, and, and I think that it means that uh, we need to ask what it means to say, qu- uh, quell those fears and how do we turn their po- more act- activeness in politics toward the good um, if, if we don't think that they're going in the right direction. So it, it was very interesting. There was a lot of different uh, good tidbits in there that I think show how we might be able to interact with them as real human beings. Obviously, no one, you know, you can't judge any one person by broad, these broad strokes, but it does give us some ideas for how, how, how to do so at the starting point. All right. And if you're listening right now and you just need a reminder, who is Gen Z? This is uh, the group of people born between 1997 and 2012, so they are currently 9 to 24 years old. So we are talking here about uh, young adults, college students, high school students, um, and middle school students. That's that's who we're talking about. Everybody middle school to mid-20. Mid school to mid, middle school to mid-20s is Gen Z. I just think sometimes, Adam, as, uh, as we get older, it's helpful to um, be reminded, 
who are we talking about when we're talking about Gen Z? So there you go. Yep. Adam Carrington, as always, thank you so very much for joining us. Um, it always It's always very informative uh, and helps connect what's happening in the world with a biblical worldview, which is what we're all about. So thank you so much. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. You can find him at Hillsdale College. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. I'm Carmen LaBurge. We'll be right back. I'm always amazed uh, at the diversity um, and experience of those listening. So thank you for chiming in on the text line, 877-933-2484. Shanette uh, texting in that, you know, we can't change people, but we can make a change um, by making our own choices. She says, I was a swimmer all the way through school. I went to nationals and there's no way I would swim if I was in their position. Um, So let's be praying for, you know, young women making those kinds of decisions about whether or not to compete. And then let's be, you know, let's be supportive of them when they do. Uh, You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. I'm Carmen LaBerge. There's another hour up next. We're going to talk with retired General John Bradley. He's going to bring us an update on Afghanistan. He's also going to make some observations about what's going on in Ukraine. Uh, And then we'll talk with the president of World Vision, Edward Sandoval, fresh back from a trip to the front lines of the refugee crisis. Um, So we're going to give you an eyewitness testimony of what's happening with Ukrainian refugees. All of that up next here on Faith Radio. This is Mornings with Carmen. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.